Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Inside Intercom. One of the best parts of having a platform for weekly conversations like this is that we're able to sit down with some of our favorite writers and go much deeper into the ideas that they're exploring on their blogs, medium pages, or even in epic Twitter threads. This just happens to be one of those episodes, as I'm lucky to be joined by GitHub senior product designer, Joel Khalifa. Before linking up with GitHub, Joel was a product design manager at DigitalOcean, a cloud computing platform for developers. A full-stack designer, he's also taught front-end web development at General Assembly, and been a design mentor over at Andreessen Horowitz. But roles and responsibilities aside, Joel is probably best known for his writing at joelkhalifa.com. Joel's writing can come intermittently, but at the beginning of this year, he spoiled us with a whole batch of fresh articles, and after reading two in particular, we knew we had to get him on the show. The first of which was Tiny Wins, a post all about why we shouldn't overlook the benefits of small product changes, and the second was Subverted Design, an honest look into what happens when designers gear too much towards solving business problems and lose sight of their users along the way. So in what became a pretty wide-ranging chat, we talked through both of these ideas in depth, along with the shifting responsibilities of a designer, how it is that many examples of subverted design, while well-intentioned in their nascency, end up losing their way, the way in which his team at GitHub tackles change aversion, and much, much more. Okay, two quick housekeeping notes before we get into the episode. First of all, if you like Joel's insights, I can't encourage you enough to subscribe to his newsletter at joelkhalifa.com. He often writes follow-ups to many of his great blog posts, which are exclusive to that list. Secondly, if you want to hear more conversations like this one, subscribe to our show over at iTunes, Overcast, wherever you go for podcasts these days. We've got a fresh episode every week, and our back catalog is now over 100 episodes deep. Okay, so with that, let's hop in the studio and talk all things design with GitHub's Joel Khalifa. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom. Making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Joel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I got to start by asking you, is there a good story behind that Twitter handle at Not Details? There's a story. I, I wouldn't say a good story. <laughs> <laughs> so it's based on an Eames quote. The details are not the details. They make the design, which basically means that every small thing amounts to the big thing. So not details actually means yes, details, ironically. I I love that because it really is almost a metaphor for a lot of the things we're going to end up talking about here today. Just to get us started, can you give us a brief rundown of how you got to where you are today and a sense of the challenges that you and the people you work with are tackling today at GitHub? So very, very quickly, I started on both design and code very early on, uh, probably when I was... 12 or 13 or so, I got into Photoshop, HTML, various programming languages, uh, just as a hobby. But very quickly started freelancing, doing album covers, websites. At 14, I built a tech company's intranet. For some reason, they let me do that. (laughs) And so I kept doing this for a while. And after the army, I joined a design agency in Israel, uh, which is where I'm from which was like a great intro into how things are done uh, at a professional level. I was a visual designer uh, at kind of a waterfally UX to visual design to front end to back end kind of deal. And I learned a lot there, but I, the biggest thing I learned probably was that I wasn't a good designer. <laughs> um, and I decided to 
uh, go back to school and fill in some foundational gaps I felt I had in terms of typography, color theory, um, usability. So user experience became really interesting to me. Right. Yeah, and that's what ended up bringing me to the States and to New York. And uh, I've been here ever since. Initially during school, I started working at a Y Combinator startup, making outreach tools for nonprofits for about two years. That was really fun and uh, super fascinating. At some point, as many startups do, it went through some tough times. And a lot of us had to, well, all of us had to find uh, new gigs. And around then, my portfolio was hosted on one of these old hosting sites like HostMonster, HostGator, alongside a lot of other websites. So it wasn't, it wasn't super fast. And I felt while looking for a new job, I had to make a really good impression. And the thing I landed on was DigitalOcean, which let me just put it on a cloud server. And the experience there was so nice uh, and interesting and full of potential, I thought, that I actually applied for a job there and ended up working at DigitalOcean for the next three years. Uh, initially as a designer and then leading the organization for the next two. And so all of this kind of designing and coding for my entire life and working at a developer tools company, all of it kind of lined it up for when I was looking for my last job about half a year ago to bring me to GitHub, essentially. And I know that you moved into management at DigitalOcean. Are you now back in a senior contributor role at GitHub? And was that pendulum swing a conscious decision? I am, and it was. <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff I really love about management. Mostly it's empowering people. It is building a strong organization. It's kind of working across different departments and making sure decision-making is functioning well. There are good processes, stuff like that. So I, I'm a big nerd about all that stuff, and I really love people management. But there were certain aspects to the job that kind of burnt me out over the, the last two years. And so I was ready for not just a break from that, but also I was kind of getting antsy about coming back to actual product design challenges. And after six months of GitHub, I'm, I'm just so satisfied with the decision <laughs> because like, it's super fun. It's just so fun. That's awesome. And like those range of experiences really complement each other too. I mean, a lot of the really good individual contributors have had management experience in the past. At the same time, a lot of the best managers are people who very recently were, were at the coalface. Yeah, I, I think that it's given me more context for how organizations work. It's, it's made me a better individual contributor leader than I was before. I know how to rally teams now. I know what to look out for on a higher level. It's definitely been useful experience. So as you said today, you're at GitHub. You've been there for about half a year now. And I think that's such a unique challenge that you have there because your typical user is a developer. And that means, well, they know GitHub inside and out. They are all essentially power users. And they probably really don't like it, at least at first, when you make changes to their workflow. So I'm really curious, how does your team think about things like change aversion and the cost of improvement and juggle that to make sure that you're improving the experience for your users, but not throwing them off too much? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so developers are indeed the biggest power users that I've ever met. <laughs> and they've been, they've been essentially my users for the last three and a half years now at DigitalOcean as well. Right. And something I can definitely validate for you is that power users hate change. <laughs> I, I remember 
I, I changed like the sidebar at DigitalOcean to a top navigation in order to unlock a lot of things that we wanted to do. And just everyone went crazy. It, it really bothered so, so many people, this, this small change, because they were so used to clicking things in that specific place. Uh, and they were so averse to that change. And I think the reason for that is that they, especially developers, they find ways to make even the worst interface really efficient for them. <laughs> so they get used to things and they work around things and they build hacks for things. And then any change you introduce, even really positive change is going to throw that efficient flow off balance. They're basically turning weaknesses into strengths. And so then, I mean, that's got to be such a complex part of your process when testing these things with users, right? It is. It is. People like absolutely horrendous stuff. <laughs> um, and it's, yeah, it's something that's hard to deal with, especially because of the variety of workflows that exist out there. So different engineers have created very different flows and have kind of built very different kind of systems for themselves within GitHub. And so accounting for all of that is something that we, we need to do, but is also kind of impossible to do. Right. So we don't really have a framework for this at GitHub, but I think we try to take more of a common sense approach, which just means we take into account all of the context. So how representative is this specific power user for the entire user base that we want to serve? Because we have 20 million engineers, and usually the power users are not the majority of them. How disruptive is a change going to be initially? Is that going to be offset by the change's potential? And so forth. I think lately we've been biasing towards introducing these difficult changes rather than you know ignoring them or punting on them. I know not all the changes your teams have been introducing are, are difficult. In fact, you wrote recently about a couple of uh, what you called tiny wins that your design team got across that weren't necessarily things that your, your users were asking for, but based on the social proof you put in the blog post, they seemed extremely excited about things like the dynamic favicons you have at the top of the browser or even the the pull request indicator, that arrow that you introduced. I mean, all these things, it seems to be that the impact vastly outweighed the effort for these. So how would you define those those tiny wins and when and why should design teams be seeking those out? So the way I describe tiny wins in my blog is that there are a few things. They're standalone, which means that they provide their own value. And they aren't just part of a larger project, right? They're not just like a tiny thing that you're going to have to see all these other things to see what it amounts to. They're On their own, they are valuable. They're low effort, which means it's straightforward and takes a short amount of time to build these features. Uh, they're high impact. And that means that they affect very high volume flows in a positive way. So things that your users use every day. And then even if they save just a couple of seconds there, they can create this cumulative impact with every use of that flow. And then a useful way that I've found to think about these is as shortcuts. So they get rid of existing steps or they, you know, they go around them. And these can be physical or mental steps, like either just having to think about something or actually having to click something. And then they make doing the thing easier. So a few examples that I listed for this are... Netflix skip intro button or Chrome's icon for, you know, which tab is currently making noise, which, you know, lets you shortcut the clicking through every single one of your tabs before you find it. And then my work at GitHub, as you mentioned, was turning, you know, a vague icon into an arrow 
just really simple things or that changing um, the favicons to be dynamic so people know what's happening inside the tab. And there are a few reasons I think tiny wins are really awesome. And the first one is that company momentum breeds trust, I think. So when you see these frequent changes that make your lives better, that translates into the company actually caring about you. And in turn, I think it can make you care about the company and breed some loyalty. And you can see that from the love fest, right, that ensued on Twitter after any one amazing. of these features. Yeah, right? Like people were like, Nobel Prize to Netflix, skip intro button. They, they, they really love that. To the point of just like, you know, it's a skip intro button. It's this small thing. But when you think about someone watching like 30, you know, TV shows a week, I don't know if that's healthy. But like, so, let's let's just is pretend like, it is for a second. Yeah. Like everyone watches 30 episodes on Netflix every week. Right. And so that's 30 times that they are kind of randomly tracking through the episode, trying to make sure that they don't like hit into the middle of the first scene or hit like the middle of the intro still. And the skip intro button just solved that. This seemingly small frustration that everyone's just like, this is part of life, but it has that level of impact, right? Because even though they thought it was part of life, they now understand it doesn't have to be. And they're feeling the emotions from that. Right. You're making you're making their lives easier, faster and better in in some subtle way. But I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that they just sort of think it's a part of life because a lot of these opportunities that you've identified here aren't really what you would get in as common feature requests. You're not going to have someone from support storm into your office or flood your inbox with a list of, of requests for these things because they just assume this is how things are. So what's your advice for identifying those types of opportunities? How would you advise fellow designers on that? Yeah, I mean, so that's totally true. I think any of the tiny wins that I listed out aren't things that were very clearly needed and no one had asked for them, right? It's, it's like that Ford faster horses quote, right? If, if you ask people what they need, they'll say faster horses. They won't say a car because they don't, they can't imagine it. Right. So I don't have like a silver bullet solution, but in the blog post, I suggested a few questions as you put together, like a, a list of potential tiny wins or potential things to build. And it's more of an introspective process rather than going out and trying to figure things out. And once you have a list, you can validate that list and see if these things are real, right? But the the important part, I think, is first building that list. And so some of those questions are, you know, what are your product's most frequently used flows, right? Think about that. And then what about those flows might be frustrating? What regularly takes time or cognitive load? And this could be an extra click or maybe an ambiguous component. How frustrating do you think these moments are? And what's the sum of time or frustration that fixing each of these is going to save? Is it going to be noticeable? Are people going to enjoy it? Will it create like that joy? Will it be shareable, et cetera? So asking these questions can give you like that first list and then you can validate it and figure out what you want to do with it. Is a big part of that validation process keeping things in scope? Because one thing we hear around the office at Intercom all the time is that there really are no small changes. There's trickle down effects for all these things. Yeah, no, for sure. So the thing I do is include as many relevant people as possible in the process. So get your engineers in there early to help you scope these potential tiny wins. I've definitely worked on a ton of projects that end up becoming much, much larger and longer than they should have been. But I think when you start on a feature like this, you can make a conscious decision not to pursue it if there's 
many known unknowns, right? If there's many things that you like, this could result in a really long project. And then if you have decided to pursue it and you encounter a huge unknown unknown midway through, then you should ask yourself whether it's worth continuing, right? Because the point of this isn't to build this no matter what, it's to build it because it's easy to build and gives you that ROI. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that... All businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Another reason why we were so excited to have you on today is actually a different recent post on your blog. Uh, one, it's good to have you writing again. But two, that post was titled Subverted Design. And I think it's a really important topic, but I don't want to not do it justice trying to give a quick summary. So for any of our listeners who haven't read it yet, can you give us a summary of your thesis? Sure. So the the main thing I was thinking there was that, okay, if you look at our roles a decade ago, a UX designer's role was was pretty clear, right? They removed friction and complexity between a user and their goal, right? They clarified systems. And it was an interesting role, but compared to today, it was fairly small in scope, right? Like you are responsible for this one part of the product development process. So that's where we were. And we weren't super important. Like no, no one felt like they needed a designer in order to make it, which was a shame as a designer. But over the past decade, our you know, design's perceived value has been steadily rising, probably as a result of companies like you know, Apple or Airbnb, which were both very vocal about the importance of design or companies like Facebook investing very heavily in their design org, you know, et cetera. It's kind of like the entire industry has shifted gears. And today, like, you can look at almost any industry and you'll see a company that's differentiated by their design, right? In the cloud space, that was DigitalOcean. I'm assuming it's Intercom in the customer service space. With that shift in, in perceived importance of, you know, of our field and our importance as individual designers, there's also been a shift in what's expected of us. And the, the blog post was about my noticing this shift, which was that the new narrative in the industry is what makes a designer valuable is their pragmatism, 
and their ability to achieve company goals. And so today, if you see a designer who's very idealistic and kind of this cliche designer, quote unquote, one that like pushes for things to be perfect all the time for their users, they're usually treated more as a junior designer, right? which wasn't always the case. It used to be that that was kind of a designer, right? Every designer was kind of like a bit headstrong, really into their users, and it created maybe some positive friction between designers and other stakeholders. And today, what we see as senior designers are people who understand that the business is a business, right? They care about adoption and conversion, and generally they're, they're really amenable and easy to work with. Uh, which on the face of it is is a great thing. Uh, and it's easy to buy into it, right? Because there's there's a feedback loop, mm-hmm. a positive feedback loop, where when you start thinking this way of prioritizing business needs and speaking the same language as other stakeholders in your company's leadership, you get treated with more and more respect. And that respect feels really good. And you know it's generally an indicator of you being on the right track. It can come with promotions. It can come with just things that are associated with good feelings. And so prioritizing business value, which comes with all of this prestige and aligns with you know, the entire industry and what it sees as important, how do you not choose that over prioritizing users and quote unquote the experience, which is something that frames you as inexperienced or childish? So more and more designers, including myself, increasingly have centered their work around company goals, right? Because thinking about those generally ended up resulting in good outcomes for the designers. Right. And you've been advocating for this seat at the table for so long that now you want to give input to these problems and how you can use your solutions to solve them and whatnot. But it's almost like the pendulum has has swung too far in a lot of ways. Totally. And so, so I still cared about, you know, people using my product. It's not that I didn't. But my perspective and responsibilities had, had really shifted. And I think it's, it's kind of ironic because we, you're right. We have been fighting for a seat at the table for very long and for people to like get design and understand what the tools can do for them. And now that they do and design is more important than ever, we're using these skill sets and, and tools to benefit businesses rather than our original stakeholders, which were the users. Well, it's a really smart piece. I encourage all of our listeners to read. And I'll actually go ahead and plug, too, that you had a really nice follow-up to it for anyone that subscribes to your email list. You can find it there. I think originally this started as a Twitter thread, right? So was there an actual moment that caused you to put pen to paper? Or was this, again, just a gradual thing that you had noticed? And maybe it was an itch in the back of your head that you finally decided you want to wanted to do something about? Well, it's probably been there for a while. I'm sensing, especially with you know the current government and the current climate in the world, that a lot of people in tech are doing a lot of introspection this past year right. about whether tech is good. And so I'm sure I'm sure it was there for a while. And I think the thing that ended up triggering it was finding out about the Facebook deactivation page, which for anyone who hasn't seen, basically when you try and deactivate your Facebook account. It shows you photos of a bunch of your friends, people you've interacted with recently, and tells you, hey, like Dana will miss you, John will miss you, <laughs> and tells you like you won't be able to get in touch with them or any of your other friends, which to me is going a step too far, right? That's a kind of emotional blackmail. Mm-hmm. 
And seeing that and, and kind of understanding the alternatives of what they could have done just um, resulted in a Twitter rant. I, I don't have much of a filter on Twitter, so it is easy for things that I'm thinking to kind of end up on there. And I think the reason that I ended up writing about it uh, more thoroughly is how much it resonated with it, with everyone in the community. And so Twitter threads tend to disappear into the ether, and, and I just wanted to immortalize it somewhere. A lot of these ideas start out kind of innocent in, in, in the beginning. And so I'm curious, like, where do you think they they lose their way? Because I don't think a lot of these designers are going to this with bad intentions. It's just more that the goals are misshapen, right? Yeah, I think this stuff is insidious. It's it's not something that's that's super obvious, right? It's baked into the culture. Honestly, it's, it's baked into capitalism. Like it, the entire system runs on businesses thriving, right? Incentive structures run on businesses thriving. And so even when you aren't doing stuff on purpose, they end up getting shifted towards a certain direction. And, and I think you're right. I think a lot of features start out being very innocent uh, and even good features. And a great example of this is Facebook's safety checks, if you remember that. Yeah, absolutely. So this is another thing I ranted about on Twitter, which, which ended up, I ended up talking to the New York Times about it. And it, you know, it became a thing. Everything starts on Twitter for me, really. <laughs> for, for a lot of uh, us these days. <laughs> Yeah. So, so the thing about safety checks was it started out as this super wonderful and actually very pure feature um, that I think was started kind of bottom up as a hackathon or something. But after accidents or natural disasters, or like earthquakes, if Facebook detects that you're in a certain area, you can mark yourself as uh, safe right. to set like your family and friends' minds at ease. And so the original goal there was awesome. It was just like, calming people down, telling them, hey, like, even if I don't have reception, just so you know, I'm okay, you don't have to freak out. And a while back, I think like a year ago, maybe a half a year ago, at this point, there was a terrorist attack in New York, which was dubbed by Facebook as the violent incident in Manhattan. And I received a notification from Facebook that said, hey, like George and, and John and Kelly want to know if you're okay. Right? These specific friends of mine they're asking if you're okay because I'm in New York, even though like most of those people know I'm not in that area usually. Right. And so I talked to one of them afterwards because that notification seemed like really odd considering I'd, I'd known this feature before. And they told me that the way it worked was Facebook told them that I was in the area and then prompted them to message me like, hey, would you, would you like to ask Joel if he's okay because he's in that area? And so... It's a, it's a really subtle shift, right? But instead of calming my friends down now, which was the original intention, Facebook was now literally telling them, hey, there's this terrible thing happened and Joel might be there. Like, do you want to check? Which causes all kinds of anxiety. I mean, that's, that's terrible. Right. It's like the exact opposite of the initial goal. They might not even be thinking about me being there. But Facebook is telling them, hey, I might be dead right now or something. Mm -hmm. And all of this stuff ties back to business needs, right? Like that decision wasn't made in a vacuum. And, and everything Facebook does is kind of tied to engagement and people, you know, using the system more frequently. And a result of everything being kind of structured around that was, I think, the original intention of what was originally a very well-meaning feature being undermined. And that's sad. 
right? So we might barely notice that we're doing it, but we are doing it, and and the results are are kind of real, right? And as someone who's been in both the leadership role, where I assume you've had to to answer to business needs and and come up with solutions that fit those as well as user needs. How do you advise designers when it comes to staying close to their users as they move into their leadership roles? Like, I, obviously, you have to let go of some of the actual designing under the hood to manage people and make sure and guide them to do the right things. But you still need to stay close to your users as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, keep talking to them is one thing. And also check yourself. So I, I think when you're in a company, it's really easy to drink that company's Kool-Aid it's really easy to rationalize decisions. Like I'm sure the the Facebook designers designing all these features had good intentions at heart. But it's also important to actually use your product as much as you can. So I have a friend, Christine Rode. She she works at Deliveroo, which is kind of a delivery a service uh, out of London, and she actually rides around sometimes to better empathize with her users. Like she delivers food to use her own app and see what frustrations might be there. Similarly, some companies, for instance, I think ClassPass doesn't really provide their employees with unlimited classes, right? They give them a very small package. And if they want to actually use the product, it needs to be worth it. So it makes you actually inspect and explore different ways that the pricing model could function. It makes you actually look at the thing versus just taking for granted that it's fine, which makes you like less biased and, and maybe less forgiving about things that can be hostile to users. Absolutely. And I know this is a problem with with no easy answers and really what we're looking for more is, is a, I think, a broader conversation. So where would you like to see this conversation go next? I'm a big fan of Tristan Harris's idea of time all spent. And I think he has a new organization now that's trying to push companies into more ethical decision making. I would like tech at large to start introspecting more. So I wrote the blog post about designers because I am a designer and that's what I can speak to. I wouldn't feel comfortable, like I'm not comfortable now about telling people what to do. I wouldn't feel comfortable about saying, hey, PMs need to change their roles in in this and this way. So as a designer, I think maybe I can be the catalyst to some kind of change. But honestly, I can't change things myself. Like we are as much as we as much as we can now feel that we are the center of the world, you know, in this industry, we're just a small part of, of a machine. And in order to have real change, you need that entire machine to, to start shifting what it cares about. Yeah, this this is like a, a huge problem. I wish I had an answer, but, you know, tear down capitalism? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think a discussion, a open discussion from all parties is the, the first place to start. Joel, this has been awesome. Where can our listeners go to read more of your insights or generally keep up with your work? What's going on with you? Uh, you can go to my blog, uh, joelkhalifa.com slash blog. I've been trying to write very high quality material. So it usually comes out like once a month. Last month was was pretty special in me writing three three blog posts. You spoiled us. I, I did. I don't know when the next one's gonna be. But when I when I write blog posts, a thing I've started doing is sending out additional material. So it's new blog posts essentially, like blog post length things in my newsletter. 
So if you're interested in that stuff, feel free to sign up. You can sign up also from joelkhalifa.com slash blog. And then all of this stuff always starts out on Twitter. So just follow me there. Uh, you'll probably get most of it. It always comes back to Twitter. Always on Twitter, <laughs> at not details. Joel, thanks again. It's been a lot of fun and uh, we'll catch you next time. Hey, thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.